the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blend had nerve enough to take himself a vacation. He'll be back tomorrow. Anyway, we're glad to have you with us. Looking forward to a conversation with Amy Wolf. Uh, you probably remember Amy. She's the... She's the sign lady. Signs of Hope is the title of her new book that kind of talks about how she got to where she is. This international movement that's made a real difference in the lives of people all across the country and now all across the globe. We'll talk more about that. How Small Acts of Love Can Change Your World. The book is published by Zondervan. It's a great read, uh, not only for adults who are maybe suffering from a little bit of compassion fatigue in the midst of everything that's been going on in the world, but also for young people who need to be inspired and to recognize they have the capacity to make a big difference by doing very small things. So anyway, she's coming up in the second hour of today's program. Looking forward to uh, talking with Amy Wolf. Signs of Hope is her book. We're going to wind through um, news stories from the last a couple of days since we've just come out of the weekend. And of course, the big story is Afghanistan, what's happening there and the role that the Taliban is playing in determining the future course of the U.S. military and objectives there. Well, this weekend, President Biden promised that the United States would welcome Afghan allies escaping the Taliban into the United States, which is what everyone wants to hear, but only after they've been screened and cleared at military bases and transit centers. Well, the president said that the U.S. has set up processing stations in third countries working with more than two dozen countries across the continents. When planes take off from Kabul, they go to U.S. military bases and these processing stations, he said in a press briefing on Sunday. Once they're screened and cleared, they're going to welcome these Afghans to their new home in the United States, the president pledged. He also said the Taliban has to make a decision as to whether it will assume the responsibility to, and this is a quote, unite and provide for the well-being of the Afghan people. Uh, If I didn't know better, I would think that was supposed to be a joke. The Taliban unite and provide for the well-being of the Afghan people. It's like statements they made earlier about uh, protecting the rights of women, as they would define it. Look, the president went on to say the Taliban has to make a fundamental decision. Is the Taliban going to attempt to be able to unite and provide for the well-being of the people of Afghanistan, which no group has ever done since hundreds of years? End quote. The president also emphasized the growing terror threats from other countries, saying he's under no illusion about the threat of ISIS-K, a reference to the Islamic State uh, Khorasan province in Central Asia. Well, the president celebrated his administration's effort to evacuate Americans and the Afghans who aided the U.S. war efforts. Now, all of the time and attention is being focused on Kabul. But of course, that's one area in a very large country uh, where people are don't have access to the airport. Now, some have suggested we need to reopen the largest airport that had a number of runways to ferry people in and out that the president has said he will not do that. 
Uh, we were told the U.S. evacuated approximately 11,000 people out of Kabul in less than 36 hours. Uh, in total, American forces have evacuated 33,000 persons since July. Our first priority in Kabul is getting American citizens out of the country as quickly and safely as possible. He noted that American troops are contacting U.S. citizens in the country by phone, by mail, by other means to ascertain whether or not they intend to flee before the 30, August 31st deadline. Any American who wants to get home will get home, the president promised. Americans and Afghans who flee the country go to transit centers across the world, as we've explained. Well, a reporter asked the president about a CBS News poll, a poll rather, that was released on Sunday. A new poll out today shows Americans wanted to withdraw from Afghanistan, but they disapprove of the way you've handled it. The reporter noted the majority of Americans, forgive me, I'm just the messenger, no longer consider you to be competent, focused or effective at the job. What would you say to those Americans? The reporter asked the president. Look, I have a basic decision to make. I either withdraw the American people for a 20 year war. I either increase the number of forces we keep there or I end the war. And I decided to end the war. Biden replied, well, that didn't answer the question, but that was the answer given. He insisted that the withdrawal process was going to be hard and painful no matter when it started. It would have been uh, true if we had started a month ago or a month from now. The point the reporter was making was that people are not uh, opposed to um, withdrawing from Afghanistan, but believe, as is typically the case, that you remove the civilians first you remove your equipment first, and then the military withdraws. Well, a network of hundreds of thousands of people, including analysts using satellite imagery to locate Taliban checkpoints surrounding the Kabul airport, are coordinating to evaluate or rather evacuate Afghan interpreters from the country. An Afghan war veteran and member of the coalition said, well, these interpreters now targeted by the Taliban were essential U.S. allies during the Afghan war and played roles much larger than simply acting as translators. Matt Zeller says the Biden administration has faced fierce criticism that the U.S. hasn't made their evacuation more of a priority. These people that we're talking about, they were our eyes and ears on the battlefield, Zeller said. He said they'd uh, hear Taliban communications ordering fighters to shoot the interpreters first. Well, from the Taliban's perspective, they won, Zeller said. He's a former CIA analyst. He continued, the Afghan interpreters are the people who've been helping us to kill them over the last 20 years. They want revenge. They want retribution, he said. There's no place for these people in Afghanistan. Well, there's estimated to be about 20,000 Afghan interpreters and family members trapped in the country. Zeller described a digital Dunkirk campaign working to evacuate the Afghan interpreters. He said hundreds of Thousands of people joined the movement just after or rather after just a few weeks, but that it could grow into millions by the time it's over. If you served in Afghan war and you still care about these people, chances are you're probably part of the digital Dunkirk moment. Well, a Taliban spokesperson who's a spokesman, let's be honest, they don't have spokespersons there, warned of consequences if the U.S. kept troops in Afghanistan beyond its August 31st deadline, hours after the president said he could be uh, he could do exactly that. Now, one of the questions that's being asked is whether or not the president can or would extend that deadline. I mean, we're just days away from the 31st of August. Well, this Taliban spokesman, he warned of consequences if the U.S. did, in fact, attempt to extend that deadline. And this is really quite remarkable. You've got a small ragtag um, terrorist organization dictating to the United States what it can and cannot do. Well, the in an interview with Sky News on Sunday, the Taliban uh, spokesperson Suhail 
Shaheen said it's a red line. President Biden announced that on August 31st, they would withdraw all their military forces. So if they extend it, that means they are extending occupation while there is no need for that. End quote. If the U.S. or U.K. were to seek additional time to continue evacuations, the answer is no. Or there would be consequences. It will create mistrust between us as if there was trust between us. Uh, He goes on to say it will create mistrust between us if they are intent on continuing the occupation. It will provoke a reaction. Now, surely he doesn't think that the power of the Taliban, even with all of the U.S. munitions, can match that of the United States. But what he does recognize is there is no will to exert that power under the current leadership. Taliban sources have also told Reuters that they wouldn't extend the August 31st deadline for Western forces. They added that no one had approached the group about pushing the date back. So apparently, if he is to be believed, that has not even been part of the discussion. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Just a reminder, we're going to hear from Amy Wolf later in the program. Signs of Hope is her new book, How Small Acts of Love Can Change Your World. And she certainly has changed the world. We'll talk more about how what began as a small act of kindness made its way all around the globe. Well, unless you're an armed member of the Taliban in Afghanistan, your life is likely in danger right now. In particular, the uh, disastrous retreat put more than 10,000 American citizens at risk, as well as tens of thousands of Afghans, rather, who assisted the U.S. uh, over the years. But there's another group of endangered people that's often overlooked in Muslim-majority countries, and those are the Christians. Well, in a nation of approximately 38 million, estimates put the number of Christians as at almost 12,000. Afghan law forbids conversion to Christianity. In fact, it's dangerous for anyone, even um, with generational roots, to identify as Christian. But that's especially true for converts from Islam. Well, enforce, uh, enforcement rather is even more brutal under Sharia law, which will be reinstated under the Taliban. Given that reality, there could be many more Christians in Afghanistan than anyone knows. That's usually the case. Reports are that the uh, Taliban is going door to door asking for Christians, and it's not so to welcome them to the new Afghanistan. There's a real concern amongst Afghan Christians that targeted killings will start happening because of their status, says the uh, Will Stark, South Asia regional manager for International Christian Concern. The slaughter of Christians at the hands of Muslim extremists is still playing out in Nigeria. We know the danger is real and imminent. Well, some Afghan Christians have appealed to the Pope for help fleeing. American media personality Glenn Beck has uh, raised millions of dollars to help other organizations likewise will do what's possible, but the situation isn't conducive to orderly help. Well, as one Christian who fled Afghanistan after the murder of his parents in the 90s put it, I don't understand why the West left Afghanistan this way after 20 years of sacrifice of democracy. In some ways, neither do we, but we're also well acquainted with the unfortunate answer. I know many of you, many of us are praying for Afghanistan. We'll revisit that at the end of today's program. Well, Vice President Kamala Harris at last spoke publicly on what what's happening in Afghanistan as Americans and Afghans try to exit the country due to the Taliban's swift takeover. But she refused to weigh in on the U.S. government's decision making that led to the current situation. During an appearance alongside Singapore Prime Minister Lee uh, Luong, 
Both leaders were asked about the U.S. withdrawal and evacuation process, with Harris being asked what she thinks went wrong. Well, after chuckling, which was rather awkward, she said, so I understand and appreciate why you asked the question. And I think there's going to be plenty of time to analyze what has happened and what has taken place in the context of the withdrawal from Afghanistan. It's sort of a standard answer. The time will come when we can review this rather than have to face some. Uh, the details today, but she went on to say, the vice president, but right now we are singularly focused on evacuating American citizens, Afghans who worked with us and Afghans who are vulnerable, including women and children, end quote. She added that we have a responsibility and we feel a deep commitment to making sure that folks who helped us are safe, close quote. Well, if you happen to be in Kabul, that may be the case, but for the remainder of the country, There doesn't seem to be any answer at all. Well, the vice president went on to praise the president for having shown great emotion in expressing sadness about some of the images we've seen, but reiterated that the U.S. cannot be distracted in any way from what must be our primary mission right now, which is evacuating people from that region who deserve to be evacuated, which is precisely the point that's being raised at this point. Later on, she um, was again asked about the withdrawal from Afghanistan, specifically whether or not she agreed with steps taken in making the decisions, even if the results were not what were planned. The vice president said that there will be and should be a robust analysis of what has happened, but repeated that right now there is uh, no question that our focus has to be on evacuating American citizens. Well, Lee um, was asked about American credibility in light of the current events and said that what happens next will be key for how the United States is perceived in the future. Well, he said uh, what will influence perceptions of U.S. resolve and commitment to the region will be what the U.S. does going forward, how it repositions itself in the region, how it engages its broad range of friends and partners and allies in the region, and how it continues to fight against terrorism. Countries make calculations and take positions, and they have to make recalculations and adjust their positions from time to time. He continued, sometimes it can be done smoothly, sometimes there are hiccups, sometimes things go awry and take time to put right. Lee also discussed Singapore's past involvement in Afghanistan, noting that The Singapore Armed Forces had helped international forces in Afghanistan, and Singapore had also sent uh, teams to assist with reconstruction. As for the present, Lee said he understood Biden's reasons for the withdrawal and offered use of the Singapore Air Force's Airbus 330 multi-role tanker and transporter for use in airlifting people who are still there. Well, as the precarious security situation in Kabul grows more desperate by the day, apparently the U.S. commander in chief hasn't requested additional troops to the country's only operating airport. At the moment, we believe we have sufficient forces on the ground. That's a quote from National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan speaking to NBC's Meet the Press on Sunday. But every single day, the president asks his military commanders, including those at the airport and those at the Pentagon, whether they need additional resource, additional troops. So far, the answer has been no, but we uh, will ask again today. Well, the president warned again on Sunday just how difficult this mission is, how dangerous it is, the danger it poses to our troops on the ground. The security environment, according to the president, is changing rapidly. There are civilians crowded at the airport, although we have cleared thousands of them. We know that terrorists may seek to exploit the situation and target innocent Afghans or American troops. And we've certainly seen that up to this point. One of the concerns is that uh, Americans and Afghans who assisted Americans who are left behind could be held hostage um, by the Taliban. We'll continue to follow this story. We hope the optimistic view that all of the Afghans and all of the Americans can be evacuated. 
We've learned that the Taliban is inflexible with regard to the August 31st date. Um, what is needed uh, is a miracle. And I know I'm certainly praying for that, not just for the evacuation, but for the people who will remain some by choice, most not. In other news, the Food and Drug Administration today granted full approval of Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine for individuals 16 and older. The FDA's approval of of the vaccine is a milestone as we continue to battle the COVID-19 pandemic. That's a quote from the acting FDA commissioner, Janet Woodcock, in a statement issued today. While this and other vaccines have met the FDA's rigorous scientific standards for emergency use authorization as the first FDA approved COVID-19 vaccine, and this is not for emergency authorization, the public can be very confident that this vaccine meets the high standards for safety, effectiveness and manufacturing quality the FDA requires of an approved product, end quote. Well, COVID-19 vaccines developed by Pfizer, Moderna, and Johnson & Johnson have all previously been granted emergency youth use authorization after meeting the FDA's safety and efficacy requirements. The full licensure announced today stems from a so-called biologics license application building on previously submitted preclinical and clinical data information relating to the manufacturing process vaccine quality data, and site inspections. Our scientific and medical experts conducted an incredibly thorough and thoughtful evaluation of this vaccine. Dr. Peter Marks, director of the FDA's Center for Biologics Evaluation and Research, said in a statement, we evaluated scientific data and information included in hundreds of thousands of pages, conducted our own analysis of, uh, I think it's, Comirnaty's um, safety and effectiveness and performed a detailed assessment of the manufacturing processes, including inspections of the manufacturing facilities. He later added, in part, although we approved the vaccines uh, expeditiously, it was fully a, in keeping with our existing high standards for vaccines in the U.S. Now, the president uh, responding to that is suggesting that businesses issue mandates with regard to COVID-19 vaccines following the full approval of the Pfizer BioNTech shot. The others expected to follow at least the Moderna version. More on that when we return in just a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, a conversation with Amy Wolf. Her book, Signs of Hope, How Small Acts of Love Can Change Your World. Really quite fascinating where her small signs of uh, of love have taken her. Well, President Biden leaned into the new FDA licensure of, or full approval of the Pfizer BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine today, encouraging businesses to require vaccinations among their employees. Today, I'm calling on more companies in the private sector to step up the vaccine requirements that will reach millions more people, he said. If you're a business leader, a nonprofit leader, a state or local leader who's been waiting for full FDA approval to require vaccinations, I call on you now to do that. Do what I did last month, requiring employees to get vaccinated or face strict requirements, end quote. Well, they touted, rather, the full FDA approval of the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine, calling it a key milestone in our nation's fight against COVID and uh, urging unvaccinated individuals to receive their shots amid rapid spread of the highly transmissible Delta variant, driving infections nationwide among the unvaccinated. Well, the Oregon Nurses Association has issued a response to Governor Kate Brown's mandate that all health care workers must get a COVID vaccine. 
They devoted much of the response to addressing what they say are ongoing and persistent staffing issues, as well as uh, underinvestment in the profession by health care providers and caregivers. They called on hospitals and health care providers to focus on investment, training and retention of nurses going forward to help alleviate the shortages felt in Oregon. However, they made it clear they were not happy with the governor's mandate. We know Oregon's registered nurses and nurse practitioners have already achieved a high rate of vaccination. We also know that some health care workers are deeply opposed to vaccine mandates, so deeply that some will leave the profession before accepting a mandate. They went on to say Governor Brown's previous rule that required weekly testing with a waiver for health care workers who show proof of vaccination was a reasonable compromise that encouraged vaccination while protecting public health. Today's decision to mandate vaccinations for healthcare workers may ultimately exacerbate an already dangerous staffing crisis in hospitals across the state. Well, not just in Oregon or Washington, but nationally over the last five years, especially the nation has seen a steady decline in the number of nurses who are trained and obtain work. Many of them are needed to replace those who retire or leave the profession. Shortages are nothing new, but it appears the Oregon Nurses Association, much like the Washington State Association, is prepared to push back on this. In Washington State, the SEIU has said that they're going to work to find alternatives to provide public safety and encourage officials to lift this medical mandate. When other news, there was a deadly shooting in Kabul airport, the North Gate, according to a German military source, Afghan security forces stationed at the Kabul airport on Monday engaged in a firefight with unknown attackers that resulted in the death of one Afghan officer. The German military reported on Twitter. The reported shooting underscored the dangers international troops and fleeing Afghans continue to face in the city now controlled by the Taliban. The German military said in a tweet that one Afghan security officer was killed. Another three were wounded in the early morning incident. The Associated Press, citing the Germans, said the U.S. and German forces also got involved and that there were no injuries to German soldiers. The U.S. Defense Department didn't immediately respond to after-hours questions about the incident. Kabul's airport, now one of the only routes out of the country, has seen days of chaos since the Taliban entered the capital on the 15th of this month. Thousands poured onto the tarmac last week. Several Afghans plunged to their deaths after clinging to a U.S. military cargo plane as it took off. Some of the seven killed on August the 16th and other developments, video of Marines giving water to or a Marine giving water to an Afghan uh, children goes viral. And Fox News are rescuing Afghan nationals as the Taliban crisis intensifies. President Biden is urging the Taliban to provide for the well-being of Afghans. That's something new. Hundreds of released Gitmo detainees are now back to killing Americans. A massive veterans group is using intel and satellite images to direct Afghan interpreters around Taliban checkpoints. And Trey Gowdy says Biden's uh, claim to be Moses leading us out of the wilderness and the media fell for it. Tropical storm Henry is bringing heavy rains to much of the northeast U.S., knocking out power to 140,000 homes. Well, Henry packed a punch for the northeast on Sunday, resulting in power outages across Rhode Island, flooding in nearly uh, nearby states, rather. But the region was largely spared the worst case scenario. The storm is considered to be slow moving, expected to impact the region throughout the day. The Providence uh, Journal reported there were about 76,000 National Guard customers in the uh, uh, in the state without power as of Sunday afternoon, the paper reported. The report pointed out that the state was largely spared the worst possible outcome after it was downgraded from a hurricane prior to reaching the state's coast. 
when it um, made landfall near uh, Westerly, Rhode Island, Henry had sustained winds of about 60 miles an hour and gusts of up to 70 miles an hour. That's according to the National Hurricane Center. By late Sunday, Sunday rather, Henry had sustained winds of about 30 miles per hour as it moved across Connecticut toward the New York state line. The National Weather Service in New York tweeted late Sunday that the storm surge and wind threat are over, but heavy rain is expected for lower Hudson Valley and interior New England and New Jersey. Tropical Storm Henry makes landfall with a dangerous surge on the way. New York City Mayor de Blasio was booed at a concert cut short by that very same storm. In other news, Antifa members threw explosives and dispersed chemical spray in violent Portland riots over the weekend. Members of Antifa clashed with uh, right-wing protesters in Portland Sunday, the Proud Boys, according to reports. People are uh, lighting fireworks, dispersing chemical spray, Portland authorities tweeted. Those crossing the line into criminal activity are subject to arrest. Some traffic lanes are being periodically affected. In a separate tweet, officials uh, warned drivers to avoid the area, told those engaged to leave the area and be peaceful. Fox 12 uh, Oregon reported that there were approximately 50 Antifa members, 100 uh, Proud Boy protesters in the area. In other developments, the media portrayed Americans as hating their country, but the truth is more complicated. Portland police didn't intervene as Antifa and the Proud Boys battled in the streets. And Portland also saw Antifa descend on a Christian worship event. Senator Schumer, Speaker Pelosi are being panned for dancing with Stephen Colbert at a Napa fundraiser with Biden presidency uh, under sir, under uh, siege, rather, and Speaker Pelosi at a fundraising event. Victor Davis Hanson says if Biden were a Republican, Democrats in Congress would have impeached him by now, and they should have. Well, conservative radio host Phil Valentine is dead at 61 following a month-long battle with COVID-19. Finn Air International Airlines is now prohibiting fabric masks in favor of surgical masks. And the phone company has been hit with class action lawsuits over cyber attack. Mortgage refinancing is not happening despite low rates. And Patagonia has canceled a ski resort over GOP support. Well, news outlets are rescuing Afghan nationals who helped them over the years. Multiple media companies have successfully evacuated journalists from Afghanistan, including Afghan freelancers and interpreters. News outlets that have helped with evacuation efforts include CNN, Fox News, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal and The Washington Post. On reliable sources, Brian Stetler he shared that CNN quietly helped 10 Afghan colleagues leave the country in the past few days. Many other newsrooms are working on the same thing. He added, this is, from what I'm hearing, excruciating and emotionally draining work, but it's necessary work. From another story at, uh, at Deadline, Fox News Media said today that it successfully evacuated three Afghan nationals who have worked alongside its correspondents as fixers and assistants throughout coverage over the years. They also said they retrieved a colleague from a regional media company and the families of all. The affected includes producers, translators, drivers and security personnel. A total of 24 people were rescued, the news outlet says. Well, a story claims the president has no plans to fire anyone over the Afghan disaster, despite the fact that it has thrown uh, women of Afghanistan back into the dark ages. And despite the fact that Americans are still trapped along with tens of thousands of Afghans who helped the United States, many of whom are being hunted down. Ben Shapiro points out who exactly would be he fire himself. This is his operation from start to finish. And a clip from the president in 2006, of course, then 
senator, shows him ranting about holding our people accountable. He tells an audience, we have to hold people accountable for our failures. Rest of world looks at us. And when we don't hold our own people accountable, they wonder why they should follow us, our judgment. Meanwhile, from the Wall Street Journal on CBS's Face the Nation on Sunday, host Major Garrett, he asked Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, someone in our audience, might listen to you, Mr. Secretary, and say, oh, so we uh, so we have to ask the Taliban for permission for American citizens to leave. True or not true? Mr. Blinken replied, they are in control of Kabul. That is the reality. That's the reality that we have to deal with. Yes, but this uh, isn't the reality the U.S. has accepted. The U.S. military has more than enough forces to dictate between terms to the Taliban. But the other reality is that Mr. Biden is too risk averse to do it. Instead, the U.S. evacuates on the Taliban's terms. Over the weekend, the Taliban put the Haqqani network in charge of security in Kabul. In 2012, the U.S. designated the Haqqani Network as a foreign terrorist organization because of its attacks on U.S. personnel and close ties to al-Qaeda. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, we're going to talk with Amy Wolf, author most recently of Signs of Hope, How Small Acts of Love Can Change Your World. It started with 20 signs in Newburgh, and now it's an international movement. More on that when she joins us in the second hour of today's program. Well, Joe Biden to hurricane victims wear a mask and social distance in a shockingly clueless tweet. The president said to those in Henry's path, don't forget that you... Uh, may need to seek shelter while we're still uh, battling COVID-19 and the Delta variant. So wear a mask, try to observe social distancing. And to everyone across the country, don't get caught by the next storm. Get vaccinated now. California panic. The media has started launching hit pieces on Larry Elder, the top candidate to replace Gavin Newsom, should he lose in the recall vote from an L.A. Times columnist. Larry Elder is the black face of white supremacy. That is such a ridiculous statement uh, unless you embrace everything that the um, uh, the, the movement uh, espouses, you are no longer African-American. And apparently Larry Elder is not African-American enough. Uh, then there's this from The Hill. California's Fair Political Practices Commission has opened an investigation into gubernatorial recall candidate Larry Elder's financial disclosure. Well, a recent poll shows nearly 75 percent of Americans say removal from Afghanistan has gone badly. Most of those saying very badly. Noah Rothman says even if it doesn't get messier than here from here on, these impressions are unlikely to improve, more likely to deteriorate. This is the same poll that the president was confronted with at his press conference, and he claimed ignorance. More polls, more bad news for the president on NBC News. Northern Virginia citizens turn out to support arriving Afghans. They kept coming, people carrying bags and Bags of clothes, bags of toiletries, bags of diapers, baby formula, toys and books. All were donations for the hundreds of Afghan refugees or special immigrant visa recipients who arrived overnight Saturday in northern Virginia Community College after a harrowing evacuation from Afghanistan. By morning, dozens of volunteers had assembled at the um, Annandale campus. And by noon, the piles of donations had grown so high that volunteers had to turn some away. 
President Biden is now considering strikes to destroy U.S. military equipment left behind. Something of an afterthought. The administration is reportedly considering launching strikes against some of the larger pieces of U.S. military equipment that were abandoned in Afghanistan and have been subsequently seized by extremists after the president decided to pull out from the nation. The Biden administration is considering launching airstrikes against the larger equipment, Axios reported. They also fear that such a move could provoke the Taliban at a time where the U.S. is focusing on evacuating people from the country. Well, the FBI found scant evidence the U.S. Capitol attack was coordinated. The question is, will that matter to the panel that's now reviewing those events? Well, Vice President Harris laughed again when asked about Americans stranded in Afghanistan. General Blinken failed to defend the president when asked directly about competence. And a leader of a notorious terrorist group wanted by the U.S. is back in Kabul and in control. Afghanistan's Christians, though small in number, have gone underground. The British Parliament unloads on President Biden, saying Biden may have condemned the world to Chinese domination in the future. A Capitol Police officer who shot Ashley Babbitt has been exonerated in an internal probe. And the Biden administration quietly dismisses thousands of amnesty cases. The Border Patrol is warning of morale collapse. And 22 have been killed in Tennessee flooding. President Biden is trying to push enhanced jobless benefits past the deadline. And 61 percent of Americans paid no federal income tax in 2020. China has passed a three child policy, hoping to reverse their demographic uh, crisis. You might recall the two child policy that was in place for decades. Well, on this day in history, 1780, British spy John Andre is captured along with Papers revealing Benedict Arnold's plot to surrender West Point to the British. 1806, the Lewis and Clark expedition returns to St. Louis more than two years after setting out for the Pacific Northwest. 1846, Neptune is identified as a planet by German astronomer Johann Gottfried Gall. 1889, on this day in history, Nintendo is founded in Kyoto, Japan as a playing card company. 1952, Senator Richard M. Nixon, Republican of California, salvages his vice presidential nomination by appearing on television from Los Angeles to refute allegations of improper campaign fundraising in what became known as the Checkers speech. 1957, nine black students who entered Little Rock Central High School in Arkansas are forced to withdraw because of a white mob outside. 1962, The Jetsons, an animated cartoon about a space-age family, premieres on ABC television as the network's first program in color. 1987, Senator Joe Biden, Democrat from Delaware, withdraws from the Democratic presidential race following questions about his use of borrowed quotations and the portrayal of his academic record. Apparently didn't matter in 2020. 2002, Governor Gray Davis signs a law making California the first state to offer workers paid family leave. And finally, on this day in history, 2018, capping a comeback from four back surgeries, Tiger Woods wins the Tour Championship rather in Atlanta, the 80th victory of his PGA Tour career and his first in more than five years. Well, almost 15 million mail-in ballots were unaccounted for in the 2020 presidential election. And more than a million more ballots were undeliverable, according to a new study. The Public Interest Legal Foundation, a watchdog group on election integrity, released a research brief on Wednesday assessing the effect of mass mail-in balloting in an election with a close presidential race in key battleground states such as Arizona, Georgia and Wisconsin. 
These figures detail how the 2020 push to mail voting needs to be a one-year experiment, J. Christian Adams, president of the Public Interest Legal Foundation, said in a public statement. The report found that 1.1 million mail-in ballots were undeliverable for various reasons. Election officials rejected another 560,814 mail-in ballots. Another 14.7 million mail ballots met an unknown fate, the report says. Joe Biden defeated Donald Trump in the presidential race with an electoral college victory of 306 to 232 after winning Arizona, Georgia and Wisconsin by a 0.6 percentage point or less. A Washington Post analysis in February found that flipping fewer than 43,000 votes across those three states could have changed the election outcome. In the nationwide popular vote, Biden received 81,268,924 votes to Trump's 74,216,154, a margin of 7,000 votes. The Georgia Election Board voted Wednesday to conduct a review of election questions that emerged from Fulton County, the state's most populous county. The review panel will investigate Fulton County's handling of elections, not only in 2020, but complaints predating that and could result in the state's choosing an administrator to replace the Fulton County Registration and Elections Board. Well, the report of the Public Interest Legal Foundation analyzes the undeliverable, rejected and unaccounted for ballots in 2020. To put these numbers in perspective, President Joe Biden carried Arizona by 10,457 votes. Yet the state's uh, Maricoma County reportedly sent ballots to 110,092 outdated or wrong addresses. The legal organization's report says the same scenario roughly happened in Nevada, where Biden carried with 33,596 votes, yet Clark County bounced 93,279 ballots. The report adds, the lesson is clear, increased reliance on mass mail voting must correlate with aggressive voter registration list maintenance. The report also explains unknown ballots. The U.S. Elections Assistance Commission asked local officials how many ballots were not returned as voted, were undeliverable or were otherwise unable to be tracked, the report says, adding the United States Postal Service Inspector General most recently reported that only 13 percent of mail ballots in the 2018 general election use the official tracking system. This means there is a wide variety of things that can happen to a ballot in the unknown column. A ballot can be put in the wrong mailbox, land in an unfriendly neighbor's trash. It can be thrown out with your unpaid bills. It can be left outside for when to carry the last mile, like seen in Nevada in 2020. Election officials simply do not know what happened. Unknown ballots are the greatest blind spot in the American electoral system. The report shows that Clark County, Nevada, had the second highest number of unknown ballots behind Los Angeles County, California. Of the 10 counties with the most unknown ballots, seven are in California, a state that Biden won handily. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. We'll be back, so stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Clark Hilton. He's engineering today's program. James Blend, who is the producer, happens to be on vacation, but he'll be back tomorrow. Today, we're going to talk with Amy Wolf. She is the author of Signs of Hope. It's really a remarkable story, how small acts of love can change your world. She has done that with small acts of love and chronicles that odyssey in her book. We'll talk with her about that coming up in our next couple of segments. So look forward to that conversation. Also, we're going to revisit what Afghan pastors are asking us to pray for when we pray for 
the Afghan Christians. So that's coming up in today's program as well. Well, Republican California gubernatorial candidate Larry Elder dismissed a column that called him a black face of white supremacy as um, as par for the course because liberals are scared to death that he could actually take control of the state. Well, now they're looking into his finances as well, we're told. The Los Angeles Times published the column on Friday titled, Column, Larry Elder is the black face of white supremacy, you've been warned. Which accused the Republican of using overly simplistic arguments that whitewash the complex problems that come along with being black in America, as if he has no clue of what it's like to be black in America as a black man in America. Well, the L.A. Times columnist Erica D. Smith said Elder uses taunting and toddler-like name-calling of his ideological enemies before belittling the gubernatorial candidate with her own. Uh, I've learned that it's uh, often best just to ignore people like Elder she writes, people who are, as my dad used to say, skin folk, but not necessarily kin folk. She wrote before attempting to insult an elder as a Trump fanboy, dangerous, a troll, and implied he doesn't understand critical race theory. Well, the problem is he does understand it quite well, articulates it very clearly. In fact, his uh, movie, I wish I could think of the name of it. His documentary is very well done on the subject. Uh, anyway, his candidacy feels personal like an insult to blackness. Uh, So essentially what you are to believe is that blackness is only one thing. And if you stray even a scintilla one direction, well, not really to the left, but to the right of that uh, allowed uh, parameter, then you are simply not black enough or black at all. So this is extremely insulting, but this passes as acceptable these days because black people are not permitted to think for themselves outside of the box that has been prescribed for them. Well, in other news, one of the hard-fought victories of the Tea Party wave, you might recall that some years ago, that swept Congress in 2010, was the elimination of airmarks in 2011. Well, the new majority wanted to rededicate Congress to the goal of promoting a free society, free, among other things, from the manipulation of central planners. And one of the favorite tactics of central planners is using airmarks to choose economic winners and losers. Well, tragically, under the current leadership, this Congress has seen the return of airmarks, with well over 2,000 having passed the House of Representatives in the last couple of months. Now, this includes 1,475 airmarks in the House um, uh, Democrats' surface transportation bill and a list of airmarks 123 pages long in just these House-drafted appropriations divisions agriculture, energy and water, financial services, and general government, interior, environment, military construction, veterans affairs, labor, education, health and human services, and transportation and housing and urban development. Now, while the bitter lesson of history often fades, congressional Democrats have put the uh, corruption of airmarks right in front of our faces once again. Now, it didn't originate with them. It originated this time, but airmarks have been with us for a very long time. We're supported by both sides of the aisle. It just so happens this time around, the Democrats have reintroduced them. Well, they're going to tell you that these uh, community projects give members of Congress a straightforward and small-scale way to support their districts. Whenever someone tells you to not care about the impact because it's small, what they are actually saying is something is wrong. So past small scale uh, on single airmarks, um, let's look and examine what it is in principle. Uh, it is where a single congressman has the power to use money taken from taxpayers to subsidize a particular company, interest or project. It's central planning shrunk to the scale of one politician and one subsidized project. Now, if you happen to be on the um, 
on the good side, you can benefit and your constituents can benefit transferring taxes from other parts of the country to your particular project. However, if you happen to be in the wrong group, well, you're not going to benefit. Well, it's easy to see the people helped by an airmark. There will be a press release, photo ops of the lucky interests that the local congressman decided to favor. What's harder to see is the multitude of hurt by the process. Airmark can be thought of as a redirection of investment. The government didn't make the concrete steel or any number of other goods and services required to actually follow through on the Airmark project. These resources were redirected from somewhere else and from someone else. Without government manipulation, these resources would have been put to productive use for many people through the voluntary action of a free market. We can never know in full who was subsidized against by an airmark to a competitor, nor can we know which areas or industries were denied investment because of an airmark somewhere else. All airmarks require money and the resources represented by money to have been taken, in essence, from all Americans. Airmarks are, in all cases, a form of wealth redistribution and central economic planning. Now, the left will tell you that the cost and distortion of one airmark is barely noticeable. At what scale does it become noticeable? Does the scale of the left change the fact that it's theft? Now, again, we're talking about the left today, but this was widely embraced by both the left and the right. Well, at least both parties, maybe not the right in the past. Well, keep in mind that the left hasn't limited its power grab to just airmarks. The president's first budget called for roughly six trillion dollars in new federal programs over the next 10 years. His fiscal year 2022 budget would alone bring the federal government spending to just under a quarter of America's gross domestic product through fiscal year 2031. Now, before the government can spend this much money, it first has to extract it from the American people. Now, this isn't a promise of investment. It's a promise to redirect investment. In truth, what what's being offered is a federal government that will redirect nearly a quarter of all economic value produced by Americans over the next decade. Now, the same disrespectful ideology that broke um, that brought back airmarks is the uh, is to blame for this path to dramatically expand the portion of our economy redirected by the federal government. Airmarks may be a relatively small tool of this would be central planner or planners in this case, but they're still tools. No matter how well intentioned a congressman or congresswoman might be, industry group or other petitioner, what's right uh, or rather what right do they have? Uh, to the labor of others. What does it mean for our society to normalize the use of the power of law to force other people to pay for your project or your industry? Before voting for an airmark or further expansion of government, every lawmaker should answer a few questions. Each airmark may be relatively small in scale. They represent the normalization of an economy directed at the whim of a handful of federal bureaucrats and politicians. The return of the airmark doesn't just represent a small issue of congressional corruption. It represents a new front and the fight for our basic natural right to live in a free society. Now, again, this is the return of airmarks. They were in um, in vogue before. And I guess I'm not at all surprised they're in vogue again. It happens that one party is pushing them this time around, but both have pushed them in the past. And here we stand again. Well, I'm told I have one minute, so I have to decide which. I'll guess I'll I'll do this story and leave the rest for later. Uh, the U.S. Capitol Police found the fatal shooting of Ashley Babbitt. Do you remember that? The uh, fatal shooting of Ashley Babbitt during the January 6th riot was lawful. 
and the officer whose name will remain concealed will not be disciplined over the deadly use of force. The 35-year-old California woman and U.S. Air Force veteran was shot by a U.S. Capitol Police officer in the Speaker's lobby on the 6th. Eight months later, the U.S. Capitol Police concluded its internal investigation into the use of force, the deadly use of force, after interviewing multiple witnesses, reviewing all the available evidence, including video and radio calls. At the time of the shooting, the probe found officers had barricaded the speaker's lobby with furniture before a rioter shattered the glass door. If the doors were breached, the rioters would have immediate access to the House chambers and a decision was made. You can read more about it online as that decision has made. Again, the uh, police, the Capitol Police officer responsible for shooting um, former Air Force officer Ashley Babbitt will not be charged, according to an internal review. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk with Amy Wolf. Her book, Signs of Hope, How Small Acts of Love Can Change Your World. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, mom and motivational speaker Amy Wolf wants you to know that you're never too broken to help others. In her latest book, Signs of Hope, she tells the story of how she found an accidental movement, one that guided her through her own grief and touched thousands of others throughout the world. With so much suffering in our communities and in the world, it can feel impossible to make an impact. What good could you or I possibly do? Well, Amy, she's a busy mom. She's a small business owner. She felt the same way, but she didn't feel qualified to connect and uplift others. One day, after hearing about several suicides and suicide attempts in her community, she printed some signs, about 20 of them, with hopeful messages and anonymously placed them throughout her city. Well, this small action sparked a global movement of encouragement, hope, and love. It spread to 50 states, 27 countries in just 18 months. Well, she's written a book on the subject. It's an, an intimate collection of stories from her personal life, as well as people impacted by the movement she began, well, inadvertently, about the power of hope and love in the midst of suffering. Well, Amy is a, a TEDx speaker coach, as well as a speaker coach for consulting company she co-owns with her father. She enjoys having vacuum lines in her carpet, nurturing a ridiculous amount of houseplants, traveling with her daughters and husband and leading teams to Rwanda. She and her family live here in Portland. Her movement began in Newburgh. She joins us today to talk about the book that tells it all, Signs of Hope, How Small Acts of Love Can Change Your World. Amy Wolf, welcome back. Hello, Georgine. Well, it's been a while since we have spoken, but a lot has happened since then. Congratulations. (laughs) Uh, Thank you very much. A lot has happened. Well, let's begin at the beginning. I don't want to assume all of our listeners are familiar with your story. Uh, You lived in Newburgh, and there were a series of events that sparked what for you began, uh, became rather, a movement. Can you tell us a little bit of the start of your story? Yeah, well, it started of hearing... An alarming statistic, uh, uh, some news of local teens who uh, tried to take their life or did, and I didn't know what to do. I, like many of us, were reading headlines and going, gosh, what, what on earth could I possibly do? But I'm pretty stubborn, and <laughs> I'm a doer, and so I thought, I have to do something. Even if it's lame, I have to try. So my family and I, my two young daughters and husbands, stuck 20 yard signs around our small community of Newburgh with messages that said, don't give up. You are worthy of love. Your mistakes do not define you. We stuck them out thinking, to be honest, Georgine, I put them in my car 
to go stake them around the schools. And I thought, this is the dumbest idea I've ever had. This is so lame. It is so cliche. It'll help nobody. Who am I to think that I could do anything? But I drove home, thought it's anonymous. If it flops, no one knows. (laughs) (laughs) And it was the beginning of a beautiful, wild, unpredictable movement of people saying, I want to put hope in my yard. Or I took hope off that sign for myself, fighting an addiction, going through divorce, uh, fighting diagnosis. And then, as you can imagine, since 2020, (laughs) we've gotten busier as people have been trying to grasp the way to spread some positivity in their community. Yeah, I think what you've just described uh, helps us to uh, to understand that you don't have to have a lot of money, a lot of time. Uh, In order to make a big impact. And while what you began as just communicating the value of others in your community uh, really touched hearts in ways that you could not have anticipated. We need to take that in because we tend to do nothing in rather than do something that, well, we can't imagine could make a difference. Yeah, I think our biggest challenge, to be honest, now, if I were to speculate in August of 2021, is, man, we're tired. We're weary. Some of us are still looking for jobs and we're still lamenting the grief of losing a loved one. And I mean, things are heavy and it's headline after headline and with the, you know, with Afghanistan and and Greece and flooding and I mean, there's just fires and it's earthquakes. It's so overwhelming to read the headlines and have compassion fatigue. So I hope that this is a timely word this week uh, because you and I have gone back and forth a little bit trying to schedule this. I hope this is divine timing this week. You can do something. I don't know what it is, but you can do it and it's going to matter. How do you address the compassion fatigue? Uh, You put it so beautifully. We're overwhelmed with what's going on in the world around us and perhaps we're feeling drained and yet we want to reach out and minister to others in hopes that we can make some kind of difference. What do you say to the compassion fatigued uh, who find it difficult to find the inspiration to reach out to others? Yeah, I don't think I have a clear answer except to say, you know, I think it believe, it starts in our, our sense of agency that we have the ability to change things. And then a sobering start of, and it doesn't matter if it's big. I mean, the, our movement became big, mm-hmm. <laughs> unexpectedly. But sometimes it's one soul. Sometimes it's one day. Sometimes it's changing the outlook in one season for someone. And that should be enough for us. And so I think it's our, our belief in ourselves that we actually have capacity, the agency to be positive influence and then just be open fisted, open handed about what those outcomes are, that we just sow the seeds of kindness. I think with compassion fatigue, also, we kind of got to choose a thing and go with it. We can't be all things to all people. So where, you know, what headline caused your heart to stir uh, the most? And then just do something about it. Hit a website, hit click donate, write a hand note to the organization, a handwritten note of gratitude for their work. Today, I dropped off snacks at our local hospital to help the nurses. It's the little things. Yeah, yeah. Um, One of the things that you sort of touched on is that we can show up and should show up even imperfectly to help others. Sometimes what makes Mm -hmm. us reluctant is I I know what I want to do. I know what I want to convey, but I'm not sure I can do it well enough. You printed some signs and put them in your community and it changed things in a dramatic way. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I think if we wait until we have our life together, we're going to be waiting forever. Uh, I am no one noble. I am not any different than all of us who are seeing the same headlines and we're busy and we're preoccupied and we're fatigued and we're weary. So if we all wait for someone with more money, more resources, more connections who have their lives together, then man, there's going to be a lot of good left on the table and, and we're going to miss, we're going to miss it. We're going to miss our mission. Yeah. So we, I think it starts with, we just got to notice each other. When you hear of a need, what's within your capacity to meet it? And you know what? Maybe one day depression, you can't get out of bed. Your anxiety is heightened. Okay. And then maybe in a few days, you hear of a neighbor who's going through a hard time and you just write them a card. You know, so I I think part of the strategy is we we take care of ourselves and then we do what we can to take care of others, but we don't wait until we feel perfect or qualified. Yeah, nothing would ever be done if that were the requirement. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the book, um, Signs of Hope, How Small Acts of Love Can Change Your World. You design it in such a way that you you explain the global movement that you birthed by a very simple series of acts. But you also offer some many chapters that uh, that reflect the messages that have resonated around the world. Tell us a little bit about how the book is structured for listeners who want to learn from your example and how others have followed that example and made a difference in their world. Yeah, so the the book does tell more stories about the movement. In fact, my inner circle read the book and said, I didn't even know some of these details of how it all came together. Mm-hmm. So it, it would be really interesting to read, I think, for those who are in the nonprofit space or wanting to start movements of their own, kind of to hear the inner workings of how things happen for us. But then there are these many chapters you mentioned. There was... <laughs> behind the scenes writing a book, there came a moment where I don't know if I have any more words and I, I, I need more words in this book. I have a word count. I'm in high school all over again, hitting the word count tool in Microsoft Word to see if I'm closer and closer. And my mom said, well, why don't you add many chapters that talk about each of the messages on your products and your yard signs and stories around people resonating with that one in particular or why you guys chose that message. And that birthed these mini chapters throughout the book to unpack what is you are not alone. Where did that come from? Well, that came from a grieving widow that I met a couple months after the movement started. And it's not too late. Where did that come from? Well, actually, it was an account, an encounter my mother had with a stranger years ago. Uh, and so there's, there's these stories of why, why did we choose these words? And then what was the impact of them? Stories of people encountering these words at the right place at the right time. But I think there's nuggets in here for everyone. There's a chapter about why is it so hard to claim hope for ourselves? You know, there might be a lot of do-gooders that read this book and they're encouraged, but I hope there's a chapter, chapter six, where they're going, why can't I take it inward? Why do I have a hard time helping myself, asking for help, knowing what I need? And chapter seven is about how do we love people who are different from us? Good Lord. Chapter seven is so timely. It is a timely word for our country and our culture. Yes is how do we mean you matter for everyone? What does that even look like? So I do hope there's some nuggets, no matter where you're at in your journey. Yeah, well, I can tell you there are nuggets, no matter where your readers are <laughs> at in this uh, in this journey. We need to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation in just a moment. Again, we're talking with Amy Wolf. Her new book, Signs of Hope, How Small Acts of Love Can Change Your World. She's seen it happen. The book tells us how. And uh, who knows, we might be able to do the same. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Amy Wolf. She is the author of Signs of Hope, quite literally, How Small Acts of Love Can Change Your World. You mentioned Chapter 7 in the book. It's titled Meaning It. Um, in which you write about empathy and how we connect with people who may be very different from ourselves and what um, what it might mean, uh, how some of these signs might mean in the hearts and minds of individuals whose journeys are, are uh, quite disparate. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that chapter and the importance of proximity? Yeah, uh, I, I told my editor, if I could write a whole book, it'd be chapter seven. Mm-hmm. On, I could write a whole book on this topic because it's been really hard. For me, I realized I put you matter on a sign in my yard uh, and I didn't mean it. I thought I did. I mean, I'm a kind person. Uh, my you know, elementary school teachers I'm still in contact with is, oh, we knew you were such a kind, compassionate girl when you were young. And it's so cool to see what you're doing. And I am embarrassed to admit, no, I put it in my yard and I didn't mean it. Not because I was unkind, but because I meant it for only people like me. I didn't hate anyone. But I didn't understand, and I didn't listen, and I didn't empathize. And so the chapter seven is an honest uh, points confession of how I didn't mean it for my LGBTQ friends. I didn't mean it for people of color, where I just I was more confused and I and I wasn't listening very well. And so it's an honest take at how I struggled to mean you matter to everyone, and what does that look like? And what you said, it looks like empathy, man. Even if we don't agree. Even if I don't endorse specific ideas, I can have empathy that if I was in your shoes with your experiences in that value system, man, I'd do the same thing probably as you. You know, I would feel the same way you would, even if I disagree with it. So empathy is not endorsement. And I think that is huge. (laughs) That's huge. (laughs) That's number one. And then you talk about proximity, getting in proximity. Uh, I had a friend even this week, Georgine, where we disagreed on something fundamental, had to do with vaccines and COVID, so super sensitive. Mm-hmm. And I, I, we started to exchange messages. And you know what happened is we got close together again. We started the conversation. We got in proximity and suddenly less anger, more understanding, more empathy, more grace and thought. I'm still seeing it outwork in my life, even this week. Proximity matters, getting close to people that maybe we uh, have disagreements about about things, big or small, getting in proximity and having empathy. But, you know, that's not the way it's done today. We have a disagreement. It divides us and we just avoid each other for the remainder of our short lives. And and nothing is ever resolved. We don't move forward. That tends to be the way things are are done today. How did you um, work toward reconciliation, that may not be the right word, but um, sure. bringing the two of you together again in the midst of a disagreement. You mentioned the the vaccine and COVID-19. That's yeah. one major issue yeah. that has divided us. How did you manage yeah. in this situation um, to, to come closer together rather than apart, which is what we tend to do today? Oh, yeah. I can practically walk you through my steps. One, I wanted to hit reply and I was mad and I chose not to. So one, hmm. cool off. Cool off. Don't hit reply. Don't respond back until you're in a good mental and emotional space. So I waited two days (laughs) and then my anger subsided. And then second strategy is lead with a question. 
a sincere question. So I asked her a sincere question instead of rebuttals, instead of, yeah, but what about this? And instead of, but read this article, I asked her a question. And her decision to answer me, not defensively, but to see the sincerity in my question and answer patiently, thoroughly, without sounding defensive or angry at me, that was her choice. And so she engaged in a positive way with a positive mindset. And she thoroughly explained her ideas and opinions. So one, I think we need to wait and hit reply and cool off. Two, I think we should lead with questions to understand instead of answers we want to preach. (laughs) And then three, to try to defeat defensiveness, try to back off the I'm right, you're wrong. Try to get out of that space and seek to understand and learn from one another. And in the end, her and I don't agree on everything, but man, we don't, we aren't filled with, filled with anger. We're not frustrated and we have a relationship intact. Mm, what a beautiful outcome to what could have been an explosive situation. Yeah. Anger will do that. Miscommunication will do that. Making assumptions of each other and probably assuming the worst, assuming worst intent in each other is, is totally destructive. Man, what would happen, Georgine, if we assumed best intent from each other? Mm-hmm the things would change. Yeah. 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 One other chapter that I've, I, well, they're all great chapters, but that I wanted <laughs> to talk to you about today was the one, how to claim hope for ourselves. Um, yeah. Because as we mentioned earlier in our conversation, that can be a real challenge. I learned, for example, this weekend that a pastor whose church, my husband and I had visited um, many years, passed away from COVID-19. I didn't know. And just how do we claim hope for ourselves when we're, uh, when we're sorrowful, when perhaps we don't feel motivated to do anything to reach out to others when we ourselves are, are grieving? Yeah, well, I think my, my first thought, which I'm no expert, I've just gone through hard mm-hmm. stuff. So mm-hmm. just from my personal experience is, you know, to feel the feelings. We have a lot of different ways that we can numb ourselves these days. A lot a lot of ways we can numb our emotions. So well, number one, we got to feel our feelings and then it might be a messy ball of yarn, but we're feeling them. We're trying to name what we're feeling. Why are we feeling that? Maybe getting curious, man, I had a strong reaction to reading that headline. I had a strong reaction to my roommate or to my spouse. What's going on? Why am I so angry? Rumble with it, get curious and trace it back to what fundamentally, what was it? You know, my mom is a wise lady. You'll hear about her in the book, but she said anger is always a secondary emotion. So for me, anger is kind of a quick flash in the pan, but then I got to get curious. Once we identify where does this hurt come from? Where are my emotions coming from? What are they? Then I think maybe we'll get more clear on what we need. Man, I need um, more boundaries in my family. I need a friend that I, it is on speed dial and I know that they're available for me. I need to get off this group text that never ends. (laughs) I need, you know, what being able to ask for what we need setting, maybe it's, you know, it could be a million things, but those are the first things that come to mind. Yeah. Yeah. Another um, thing you write about is resilience when love spreading efforts backfire. And I think that's maybe a fear (laughs) that some of us have that what we are attempting to do may backfire. Talk a little bit about that resilience and the fact that sometimes our efforts can backfire. So yeah, you would think that putting don't give up on a yard sign would seem really hard to bash. And that's not the case. Uh, People can find negativity wherever they want to find it. And 
We have certainly gotten a handful, perhaps more than a handful over the last four years of this is lame. This is coddling, you know, these messages, your mistakes do define you. You're an idiot if you don't. I mean, just a lot of negativity. And it was shocking to me. And I wonder how many of us have tried to do a good deed, tried Mm -hmm. to show up for someone, tried to serve somewhere well. And man, it did not go the way we planned. So there is this chapter uh, kind of wrestling with the idea of, yeah, maybe we should evaluate our intentions. Was I helping this person so I could feel good? Maybe I should do my own personal work on that. Or, or maybe I thought I was being helpful, but really that's not what the person needed. I assumed what they needed. I did not ask. So maybe we need to ask more questions to offer better solutions for people. You know, what do we do with the naysayers who will poke holes in anything good? Uh, I, I shared some stories specifically around the movement and some other people's experiences as well. How do we navigate the challenges? Yeah, yeah. Now we're just at about out of time. Um, but before we uh, end, I just want to give you an opportunity to talk about the importance of hope. And if we can convey mm-hmm. that to someone who is on the edge of despair, um, we will have accomplished something of, of great value. Yeah, I think hope is having just positive, positive outcomes for ourselves, wanting good things, good jobs, good relationships, good opportunities, and life's going to throw curveballs. And I know for some of us, we feel like we're the only ones. And I just, I want to tell you, you're not alone. It's not just you. And I, it doesn't remove your problem, but there is solidarity that you are not alone. And then I think when those curveballs come, it's okay to be angry. It's okay to be frustrated. uh, But there are resources. There are friendships. There are hotlines. There are all sorts of things that are available to us to say, we're feeling weak and we need a little help. And we all are in this boat. There is no shame in asking for help. We are all in this boat. I've had done my fair share in the counseling office. um, And, so I would say if, you, if you've lost that that flicker of hope, uh, it's okay. There's resources for you. You're not alone. Uh, and, and ultimately, ultimately, whether you believe it or not, this is what I would say, whether you believe it or not, you can overcome. You might not feel like today you can. Find someone to hold the hope for you until you are strong enough to hold it for yourself. But in you is the ability to overcome obstacles. There is agency in you, whether you feel it or not, um, and rally people around to help until you can. Oh, that's so good. Well, Amy, congratulations on your success of giving people hope when they needed it desperately. Once again, the book is titled Signs of Hope, How Small Acts of Love Can Change Your World. It's definitely worth reading. And now's a great time to do that because we need to uh, spread hope and to receive it for ourselves as well. Thank you so much for taking the time, Amy. Appreciate it. Thank you. Bye bye. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. A few, um, well, it's been a few days ago now. I shared a, um, a memo from pastors in Afghanistan asking us to pray for them. And I wanted to repeat what they asked us to pray for as we continue to watch the uh, uh, the situation in that country in which it appears that we're not going to be in a position to extract everyone who is entitled to be extracted from that country. That includes many Christians. We have heard that many of many believers, uh, many pastors and others 
uh, have taken to the hills to try to avoid contact with the Taliban. And this um, Afghan pastor, or I should say Afghan pastors, have asked us to pray for them. And I hope we are are doing that faithfully as we pray for others who are also uh, members of the body of Christ. Um, the pastor who sent this uh, memo uh, is himself from a uh, another country who was able to communicate, Josh Manley. And he begins reminding us of Hebrew 13.3, which says, Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. And I've, I've pondered that thought. Remember those in prison as though in prison with them. We are to be empathetic, as we were just talking with Amy a moment ago, uh, in a way that is uh, is unique because we are described in Scripture as being members one of another. Well, he writes that his Taliban forces have swallowed up Afghanistan and even now the capital city of Kabul. Pastors in the country have been emailing and messaging me over the last few days, even hours anxious for prayer. Pastoring just a short flight away uh, in the United Arab Emirates, I've had the opportunity to build partnerships with these men over the last decade. One house church leader sent me a picture of the small room he was hiding in with his family. He wrote, this is where I am living. We are hidden right now in different areas. Another pastor wrote, we can't go out like normal. It's dangerous. We moved to one of my friend's houses, but it's not safe at all. Um, World uh, reports that pastors say the Taliban has contacted them saying they are coming for them. So the expectation is we know who you are. We know where you are. We are coming for you. So they've asked us to pray specifically. They've asked uh, for you and I and our churches to pray for them. They're asking for physical protection and provision. I asked one brother if he was presently in physical danger. He replied, not only me, but my family, too, because of me. We need to pray that our sovereign God would physically protect our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan, boldly go to the throne of the universe and plead with our God to restrain evil and confuse the plans of evildoers. You and I can't go to Afghanistan. There's literally nothing we can do to relieve the uh, the pressure that these followers of Jesus are currently under. But we have access to the throne of grace and God can intervene. He can change the course of a mighty river. He can change the heart of a king and he can thwart the plans of the Taliban and other um, jihadists who are there pray also for physical provision. One brother asked that we would pray for financial issues because no one can take out money from the bank and ATMs are empty. So their finances are not accessible. A number have specifically asked that we would pray for visas to get out of the country. So let me um, throw in an additional request for you, dear reader. It's uh, uh, is helping secure a visa, something you or someone, you know, are in a position to help with. If so, do what you can. You can sponsor someone to come to the country. Whether you are or not, uh, you do have access to the throne of the universe. I love the way he puts that. The throne of the universe. It's an apt description of the throne of grace where God is enthroned. And you can ask our Heavenly Father to provide. Pray for physical protection and provision. Psalm 109, 1 and 2 says, Be not silent, O God, of my praise. For wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. They encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause. And that's a description, of course, of what's happening on the ground in Afghanistan among all of the people, but certainly among those Christians who have been warned. They're asking us to pray for spiritual provision. Every church leader who has emailed or texted me, he writes, has asked that we would pray for the Lord to strengthen them in their faith, that they would stay strong in the Lord, who is the sovereign king, as one put it. Pray for me to be strong in my faith. It is really hard to stay here. 
There are no options, says another. If you are reading this, you have the opportunity to ask God to protect and even increase the faith of our brothers and sisters in Afghan churches. They don't know what uh, today, much less tomorrow, will bring, but they can be certain that our God will supply every need of theirs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4.19. Romans 15.13 says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Colossians 1.11, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. And they've asked us to pray for gospel advance. And as I mentioned uh, earlier, it's uh, impressive to me when people find themselves in the worst situation imaginable, where they are under significant pressure and potential deprivation, where their lives are in danger, that their prayer would be for gospel advance, recognizing that that's what every Afghan needs under these um, very difficult circumstances. One brother described these days as dark and said they feel like a storm. Then he asked that we would pray for revival. Huh. Are we praying for revival here? I wonder. Well, if we are, we are being asked to pray for revival there under the um, least likely set of circumstances. They're asking for revival. And I believe God will honor that prayer as we join with them. What faith they have. Well, here is a man whose life is in danger, asking us who live in relative safety and peace, who enjoy so many privileges and freedom to pray that God would open the eyes of the spiritually blind and give life to dead hearts. So many um, Muslim background believers have come to faith in Christ in the absence of a Christian witness. They have seen visions of Jesus and have come to faith with just uh, he and them. And our prayer is that there would be revival, even if the evangelist, if you will, is not free to travel the countryside. Wouldn't it be like our God to work in those horrible circumstances to make his great name known? And while our Afghan brothers and sisters face terrible uncertainty, we should be like the believers of Acts 12, who themselves faced serious threats and persecution, but without ceasing, offered up earnest prayers to God. What a tremendous privilege it is to partner with those who are also followers of Christ, whose circumstances are so difficult at this time. Finally, he points out, brethren, reflecting on 2 Thessalonians 3, 1 and 2. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may spread ahead and be honored as happened among you and that we may be delivered from the wicked and evil men. Behold, I am the Lord, Jeremiah thirty two twenty seven. The God of all flesh, all flesh is anything too hard for me. We can pray with confidence that his will would be done. And we can ask as these brothers, these leaders in the church in Afghanistan have asked us to pray with them. Well, over the past weeks, um, the U.S. mission agencies have pulled out their workers. Um, uh, Pastor Manley says that he had a great privilege to minister the word to some of them as they have pr- uh, processed their own grief and confusion about what's happening there. He says, I'm grateful they could get out, pray for them, as well as for any who choose to stay. And there are some who will choose to stay. But pray especially for the Afghans who have no choice but to stay, such as one brother who has already spent time in prison for his faith in Afghanistan. He has assured me again and again, we can trust that our Lord is mighty and will care for his children. And our hope is not in politics, but in Jesus, who is the king. They're not looking to the United States and the allies. They're not looking to NATO. They're not looking to the dispossessed president of the country. They're looking to the king of the universe. 
This is not escapism. This is biblical faith when all earthly prospects are completely bleak. Don't you know that such faith brings great glory and joy to our Father in heaven? Well, while these days are dark and tragic there, remember that God sits on his throne in the heavens. He holds the rulers of this world in derision. He promises to make the nations his son's heritage, the ends of the earth his possession. Psalm 2, 4 through 8. Let's remember and pray for our Afghan brothers and sisters. I want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today. James Blend, who's been on vacation, will return tomorrow. He's the producer of The Georgine Rice Show. And I'd like to thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a good night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.